Monday night, May 6th at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. You're invited to join athletes and celebs at the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame Enshrinement Dinner. Be there to celebrate this year's class featuring Olympic swimmer Jenny Thompson, San Jose Earthquakes legend Chris Wondolowski, Niners Super Bowl hero John Taylor, Sharks icon Patrick Marlowe, and the architect of the Giants dynasty, Brian Sabian. Be a part of this star-studded evening benefiting Special Olympics Northern California. To purchase tickets, visit Bayshoff.org. That's B-A-S-H-O-F.org. You're listening to Morning Tide, the official morning show podcast of the San Jose Sharks. Now, here's your host, Ted Raymond. Here's Burns with a shot and scores! It's Evander Kane with the goal, a first period hat trick against the Kaniacs. Last chance time here for the Sharks. Off the draw. They get it to Couture, and it's blocked in front of Olmark. The Sabres hang on and win. I think I think uh, we're getting better, you know. I, I, I can tell you I like, uh, I like where our game's at now a lot better than I did two weeks ago. So not easy trip, not easy games uh, or buildings, but, um, you know, I think our game is, uh, is at least starting to look recognizable here, and, you know, that should give us a chance. Yeah, I thought we played played well. I thought we, you know, we could have done some things better, but yeah, I think so. I mean, they're a very good team. They're uh, it's no fluke over there. Those guys are they got their record. Uh, they're playing playing very good hockey. So um, you know, I thought we had an opportunity to beat them. Just uh, like I said, one more one more mistake in our own end than they had tonight. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Morning Tide. Ted Ramey with you, as always, as we look back on what's been going on with the Sharks, the trends, the ups, the downs. We've had it all in about the last week's time. Again, we've been, of course, building off of the return of Patrick Marlowe. The team is, in my opinion, looking better. I know that there are some of you out there on hockey Twitter who are still uh, frustrated with the start of the Sharks' season, although I, you know, I... Think you're being a little bit harsh, but again, that's uh, easy for me to say. I'm on the payroll, as I like to point out. But I think that when you look at the big picture of the Sharks so far, there's been two entirely different ends of the spectrum. They start off with a four-game losing streak. They're not getting anything from the power play. Everything is going just absolutely wrong, and none of us are going to deny that. And listen, I can bring up the the factors, the, the births, the suspensions, the injuries, whatever, The losses don't go anywhere. Those are in the column. They're on the table. They're in the standings. Those aren't going anywhere. And then the Sharks were able to come back with three straight wins. They get a boost in the arm from Patty Marlowe. You get Patrick Kane back from his suspension. You got Eric Carlson settling into life as a father and dealing with everything that's uh, part of having a newborn child, which for those of you who think that just because Eric Carlson is A, affluent, or B, a professional athlete, like he's getting to skirt any of those responsibilities. I assure you that is not the case, and I have talked to many, many professional athletes who laugh at the idea that they are able to uh, just put down those fatherly or motherly responsibilities um, when the new child comes, and I I think that you're going to watch him start to improve his play. Not that he's been bad by any means. There's been a couple of defensive miscues that he's made, but you know, listen, if you expect Eric Carlson or Logan Couture or Wayne Gretzky to be perfect, you're probably going to be disappointed when all is said and done. Even if, even if Gretzky came close, (laughs) he still was not perfect and devoid of making mistakes, but 
You have a four-game losing streak to start the season. Then you win three straight, and then you lose a tough one against a really good team in the Buffalo Sabres who, as you heard Logan Couture bringing us in, he thinks that's a legit team. You might not trust everything that I have to say. You might not believe everything that Peter DeBoer has to say. You might not believe that anything that, you know, the guys on the broadcast have to say. But if there's one guy that you should always just count on to give his pretty much no BS answer and steer you towards reality, that's got to be Logan Couture. He is as deadpan and brutally honest as it gets in professional sports. And Logan Couture, he says, yeah, we made one more mistake than they did, but that's a legit team. They're no joke over there. And that's one aspect of looking at it. And plus the fact that when the Sabres and the Sharks play, you really never know what you're going to get. For some reason, it's just weird hockey when those two teams meet. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the overall trends, the start of the season, not good for the Sharks. You've got eight games on the table. 0-4 in the first four, 3-1 and in the next four. And let, yes, I've heard people say, oh, well, this team wasn't good or that team wasn't good. Listen, you, you play who's on the schedule. If we're going to go big picture and look at all sports, talk about the 49ers. Am I supposed to hold it against them? It's like, oh, they're 6-0. and They haven't beaten anyone. It's like, well, that's not their fault. It's not their fault that the teams that are on their schedule have not either been healthy performed up to snuff, have been able to get it done for what variety of whatever reasons, you play who's on your schedule and you try to put yourself in a good position to win. Now, the Sharks being three and five at this point, I'm sure they want to be better. There's no doubt in my mind, but at the same time, after losing their first four, there's been a relative, whether you want to call it a regression to the mean of what we expect out of this team, whether you want to call it a rectification or a correction, whatever that is, The Sharks have been playing markedly better hockey. They're taking steps in the right direction. And I think that that's what you're expecting to see out of this team. Like I said last week, this year's Sharks team was not a hit-the-ground running team. That doesn't mean that there aren't still aspirations for the Cup or the postseason or just to be quality night in, night out. Anybody who's trying to view this as some sort of rebuilding year, I I don't know. There's people who keep on – I see them out there on – Twitter keep on saying that the Sharks are not a good team. That That is not the case in the slightest as far as I'm concerned. The Sharks are a good team. It's just not entirely there yet. This is a work in progress, but there are signs that I am pointing to when we look at this. You look at the first four games of the season, the Sharks were just not in a good way. They, of course, had absences. They had injuries. They were a little bit beset by everything, but In their last four games, you go back to the Blackhawks win and they were two for three on the power play. The next game in Patty's return to the tank, they were 0 for two. But then the Wednesday night game, they were two for four on the power play. The Saturday night game, they were two for four on the power play. They're six of 13 on the power play in their last four games, which I think is so very, very important because A, as much as people might not want to talk about it, you're still getting over life without Joe Pavelski. Joe Pavelski, the chaos he could create in front of the net, his ability to use the tip play to the Sharks' advantage, his overall ability to find the back of the net. He was a generational talent in that regard, and he made the Sharks' power play that much better. But right now, the Sharks are trying to learn and trying to adjust on the power play. And what have we seen? We've seen guys in front of the net getting close to the crease, trying to use that tip play to their advantage, particularly on shots from Brent Burns. We've watched it over and over again. We've seen, you know, in the preseason, we saw them working with Dylan Gambrell. We heard from Jamie Baker talking about this. He said every forward on the Sharks team 
in practice needs to be working with Brent Burns on the tip play. That's not to say there's not a million other things that, that can be worked on with the power play, but that tip play, because it comes off of the idea of you're creating chaos in front of the net, because even if you don't get the tip play, if you're going to create a shot that does get tipped and get saved and gets a weird carom, then you're going to put yourself in a position to try and blast one home. That's what I like to see consistently from the San Jose Sharks is creating chaos in front of the net. And you heard Pete DeBoer talk about it in the post game after Saturday night's game saying the idea that, hey, they got a couple, got a little cute at times and waited too much to shoot. But at other times, the Sharks were very good at creating chaos. So it's it's a tale of two teams right now, sometimes because they know they can develop these very high level and high percentage shots. They stray from it a little bit. They don't go overboard with it. And at other times, they do create chaos in front of the net, and that's what I think I always want to see. And you're watching a team, again, that is learning itself. Like Pete DeBoer alluded to, talking a couple days ago, saying that when he first got to the Sharks, they didn't start playing really well until around Christmas time, and then, of course, they ended up in the Stanley Cup Final. Last year, if we're going to look at another recent example, it took a while for the Sharks to get going. Now, maybe it wasn't as antipodal or polarizing, where you're going from one end to the next, but you're looking at a team that has a level of talent to where it's simply undeniable that they are going to be putting together consistent level performances because I don't buy in to the four game winning streak. I don't, or excuse me, the four game losing streak, just like I don't buy in to the three game winning streak. That's not what I'm hoping to see. You don't want to be a streaky team when all is said and done. When you look back on the overall spate of games in any given month, you want to see that they're winning three out of four or two out of three, or five out of eight, however you want to look at it, or that they're getting you know, into overtime and at least picking up a point. You want to look at the big picture. And right now, we're still in a very, very small picture of the first few weeks of the season. It's not like we have a huge sample of games to look at. It's not like we have a huge sample to where we can go and say, these are the consistent problems that have bothered this team from day one. Because even though the power play wasn't doing anything in the first few games, it's gotten markedly better. Does that mean that the power play is going to be this level of consistent from here on out? I have no way of predicting that because it's such an early part of the season. But again, the thing that I keep on hammering home is that with the level of talent that Sharks have out there is that it's going to be a more cohesive unit and it's going to get better as the season goes along because A, like I said, the level of talent is there. And B, Pete DeBoer is not going to freak out. Doug Wilson is not going to freak out. They're going to make prudent changes to maximize the performance from the team. And I think that's what you should really ask for. And even though I can come out there and tell you that they should have earned this level of trust right now, there's going to be a certain facet of fans who are going to say, well, they haven't won it yet, so why do we give them the benefit of the doubt? And listen, I understand whether or not that is a quote-unquote valid argument. I understand that that sentiment exists among the fans like there can only be some highly high level of you either a win it all or b you don't like it's binary it's either one or the other and I try to compare this to other sports as much as I can and you know Billy Bean is somebody if you look to baseball who's gotten this argument where he's been able to put together these high quality teams but he hasn't won it all he hasn't been able to win the world series and so again What do you say there? Do you say that he's not successful for putting together these high-quality teams? Do you say that he hasn't done a good job? There are some fans that do. I tend to disagree with that look. I'm of the belief that you work with what you have, and though I don't entirely believe the postseason is a crapshoot, there's sometimes things that happen that are 
uh, you know, outside of the of your control. I think that when we look at what the Sharks have done since Pete DeBoer has taken over, they have made the Western Conference Final twice. They have made the Stanley Cup Final once, and they've been in the postseason every single year. To me, that is a relatively controllable aspect of team design, and it's worked beautifully for the Sharks up to this point. Still, of course they want to win it all. You don't, Pete DeBoer doesn't go to bed at night thinking, ah, well, I got into the final, now my career is done. No, of course not. He's trying to put a product on the ice that is going to win it all. Doug Wilson is trying to give Pete DeBoer the tools to allow him to win it all. That's how this organization works. And I've watched the flow of information from the ice to the front office and back down again. And I think this is one of the best organized teams that I've seen, not in just the NHL, but in all sports. It's hard to explain because, and I'm not trying to say that, oh, I'm, I've seen it. I know all, but I've been around sports my entire life. When I was, you know, five and six years old, my dad was taking me to practices for high level teams, whether it was the 49ers, whether it was college football, whatever it was, you get an idea like I did of what a highly functional organization looks like, what it feels like when everybody is on the same page. And, you know, I, I go back to the year after the Sharks bowed out in seven games to the Kings in 2014. And I remember how it felt the year after um, when they didn't make the playoffs and there was tension. I'm not going to deny it. There was tension. I still think there was an excellent relationship between Todd McClellan and Doug Wilson, but there was tension all around because there was just such a level of expectation and there was contract talk coming up and it was just, it was, it was tense. You could feel it. um, And I'm not going to deny it, but that was definitely a factor and you're aware of it. You, you read about it. The guys talk about tension between players. They talk about this, that, and the other thing. You're aware of it. When I go to Sharks Ice now, when I go to games, when I've been there in the post game, when I've been there anywhere, that's you get a level of cohesiveness and a level of comfort from top to bottom. Where yes, everybody knows their role on the hierarchy. Everyone knows where they're where they stand. But the flow of information, the willingness of everyone to listen to one another, I think that is clearly there with the San Jose Sharks. And it reminds me of another highly successful organization that we've seen in recent years in the Golden State Warriors. You look at how these teams are structured and you don't want to have some sort of a, you know, where it's totalitarian, where it's just, you know, one one opinion and then everybody else has to kowtow or listen to that person. There is a willingness to listen to all voices in the room with the San Jose Sharks. And I think that's why this has been so successful because a player who maybe does not have the most clout can point something out and the guys are going to listen. A coach, a scout, whoever it's going to be can point something out and the players, the coaches, the front office, they are going to take that all into consideration. And that to me is a huge part of a successful organization. If you have that flow of information, if you have everybody willing to listen, you're going to see things that are more successful. I'm sure they had a conversation about this when things needed to be rectified after the first four games to bring more of experience, more depth at forward, and more ability to get things just trending in the right direction. I'm sure that was a an interesting conversation that was had between Doug Wilson and Pete DeBoer and all the other involved parties where they had to decide to bring Patrick Marlowe back because the statement had been out there since the summer that that wasn't the direction they were going to go. And so they decided to make a course, I'm not even going to say course correction, but just a, a directional, they, they, they made a turn that maybe they said they weren't going to take earlier in the offseason. But that shows a willingness to change, 
a willingness to adapt, and a willingness to look at the situation and the greater picture and decide what they need to do to make themselves better. I, for one, view that, again, as a sign of a highly functioning team. And when you talk about function, maybe you start to realize that there weren't all the pieces functioning from those first three games when it looked relatively dismal to start the year. Well, that's a result of Evander Kane not being out there on the ice in part because he was not able to go out there and bring what he does on the forecheck, on different offensive looks, create chaos, all these things that Evander Kane can do. He's done pretty darn well since he's been back out there in the lineup, including having a first period hat trick. It's definitely not the norm, but you had a guy out there on the ice who's capable of doing that, whereas before you didn't. And you have depth with Patrick Marlowe, who was out there able to score goals and able to bolster the forwards and the overall offensive attack, whereas before you didn't. You've had Eric Carlson adjusting. You've had Tomas Hurdle and Timo Meyer waking up. Everything was a slow start to the season. And I know a slow start can put you in a relative deficit, but again, we're a matter of weeks into the season and we're watching a correction happen with a lot of these players. A lot of these forwards in the early part of the Sharks season, and which we're still <laughs> in the early part of the season, I should point out, but you know, you didn't get anything from Timo. You didn't get anything from Hurdle. Two guys who had so much on their shoulders coming into this year, and guess what? They're waking up and they're performing at a higher level. Here's Longature on that. Yeah, it's good to see him put the puck in the net. I mean, everyone's happy when he scores, and Timo as well. Um, you know, those are guys that we're, we're going to need to score some goals for us. Um, so it's nice to see them score a couple. And here's Pete DeBoer talking about Tomas Hurdle, Timo Meyer, and the forwards in general. Yeah, he wasn't alone, though. We had a lot of guys in that boat. So, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing you know, better versions of a lot of guys now. And Timo Meyer, who also had a loss in the game against the Sabres on Saturday night, talked about why he's playing better. Uh, I think uh, I was, you know, skating. I was playing more physical. I think that's where created some chances, but I still, you know, there's uh, lots of room to improve, and uh, you know, it's still early in the season. But you want to, you know, take steps and get uh, get better every every game. Which brought about the greater question to Timo that even though the Sharks lost to the Sabers on Saturday night, this team continues to take steps in the right direction, like he alluded to. Was this their best performance of the year, even though it came in a loss? Yeah, I think it was a good team game. Uh, we took some penalties that we probably shouldn't have taken. Uh, you know, kind of took the, the rhythm of our game. Uh, you know, had to kill off some penalties, and uh, you know, at the end, uh, some energy that might uh, you know miss. But uh, I think overall, we played a pretty solid game. Like I said, uh, too bad we didn't uh, come up on top. But uh, there's uh, you know some stuff we can take out of this game. And I particularly liked this quote from Hurdle after the Sabres loss. Yeah, I think so. I think it was so far our the best game, you know, we kinda did what's supposed to be, you know, just a couple couple of bad mistakes, but we have to learn from it and be better, you know, stop on the pucks and but, you know, it's finally looks like San Jose team, you know, so we have to just keep working, you know, power play PK looks great, so we have to keep on working on that, but we should we get a lot of chances to, you know, score, so we have to work a little bit on that. But otherwise I think it was a pretty good game, but Tough, the kind of tough loss, but we have to bounce back. We have to we play against them in our next game, so we have to be ready for them. And that's what I like. He went macro and he went micro. In the micro, he talked about the power play and the penalty kill, and those were humming at a high level. You score on 50% of power play chances, you're going to do very well for yourself. If you kill 
the other team, when they have the advantage, you're going to do well for yourself. So the Sharks did those things very, very well. And overall, like he alluded to, it said it looked like Sharks hockey. So again, I think that's speaking to the greater vision we're all seeing is that game after game, this is trending in the right direction. But of course, that's all going to be challenged to a great extent coming up as they've got a huge road trip that's really going to tell us a lot about the Sharks and is going to be, you know, really whether or not they're going to be behind the eight ball um, by the time the end of October rolls around or if they're going to put themselves in a good position. Extremely telling, extremely important. But I think that like you and like Mr. Hurdle, we all like the chance for revenge that's coming up on Tuesday night. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's we one bounce back. I think uh, it was good game for us, so we want to play against like them. You know, and but we want to win because we have now tough, kind of tough trip. So we're looking forward. We have to, we have to make the most points we can because we still kind of behind because our slower start. But you know, at least you know the uh, the game looks pretty good for us tonight. And from there, let's take it out to the phone lines. And we now have joining us on Morning Tide, it is Scott Hannon, of course, longtime member of the San Jose Sharks, and now he's made his segue into the broadcast world. Scott, what's going on, man? How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Just enjoying a, a nice Sunday here. Boys had soccer earlier on, so it's, it's been a good day. That's good, man. I, uh, I know that uh, I've talked to a lot of um, athletes when they make that segue out of the career and the post-career, and I'm curious, like, for you at this point, do you still is it hard to get away from that that everyday lifestyle of the NHL world? Like you're obviously still in it to an extent as a broadcaster, but um, you know you you have to step back when the playing career ends. Is was that a hard transition for you? Um, I think it is, and it is differently a little bit for everybody. I think at the end of my career, um, I kind of saw the end coming and it wasn't such a shock, but I mean, still, no matter what anybody says until you're faced with it, you can't really understand what it's like to go through it. And I mean, you know, I was, I believe it took me probably six to eight months to, for the body to feel normal, to Mm -hmm. get back on a normal schedule. We're so used to napping in the afternoon on games, traveling around and you're on the road trip. You don't know what time it is. You don't know what day it is. So, (laughs) To get back on that sort of, I don't want to call it a Monday to Friday schedule, but you get involved with my kids' sports, their their school. I, I, you know, I get back into that every day. That even though it seems like you're home a lot, you're you're actually sometimes not involved because your focus is so much on the sport of hockey. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up the kids. There was a, a viral video that I saw of uh, I don't know, like a five or six year old kid on a balance board doing puck handling skills. And so I have to ask you, when you were five and six years old, were you doing stuff like that? I'm just curious. I always, when I see these viral videos, I'm just thinking, man, should I be doing more with my kids as a six-year-old to get them to be a professional athlete? (laughs) I think, I mean, I don't want to step on anybody's toes here, but I think in some ways I'm a big believer in playing multiple sports and, and making sure that your kid thoroughly enjoys everything that they're doing at such a young age. Anybody that can tell you that they they think their kid's going to make it at six years old or eight years old, <laughs> um, you know, I think that that's a pretty tough thing. They've got to learn a love of a sport early yeah. because at some point in your life, at some point, if you're lucky enough to be able to keep playing a sport for the rest of your life, um, and, you know, that's an amazing accomplishment unto itself. But, I mean, if you don't have that, because eventually it feels like a job. Mm-hmm. 
And if you don't, if you can't fall back on that love of the sport, it becomes a lot harder to play and enjoy. And, and you need to have that enjoyment to make it in any, and especially at such a high level in hockey. And you've obviously been able to stay in it by way of the broadcasting world. You <clears throat> were known as a guy who was always going to be a good interview during your playing career. You had the gift of gab. Was this a concerted effort on your part? Did you always want to present yourself well to the media and be a good talker? Were you thinking long-term or was that just, you know, a part of your personality? Cause I know that a lot of athletes, it's weird. They change during their playing days. Suddenly they become these great talkers after their career because they didn't want to give the media too much and they wanted to be more private where you were always known as a, as a good interview. You know, I think it, it, it changes over time. You come in as a young kid and, and you know, and I was I remember 16 years old doing my interviews and, you know, saying some stuff. And I had some great coaches and GMs and junior that taught you the ins and outs of some things you know what to say and what not and then sometimes we to a fault in hockey you get so guarded early because you're told not to take anything outside the team and sometimes that can be a boring interview but as you grow older you learn you know family kids um you get a sometimes you get more comfortable and a little more open and mm-hmm. i felt like i got that way towards the end of my career i'm not sure i had an end in sight or or, or a goal in mind i think it just naturally happened the thing that's I always find interesting, and the first guy that really pointed this out to me was was Jeremy Roenick, and he said that he realized there was a big change at one point when he went to have a conversation with a guy that he had played with, and the guy wasn't as willing to be as open with him because he knew that he was now on NBC Sports and he didn't want to say as much. And I just it's something that you know me being in the media, I'm used to not being able to get everything out of an athlete. And I'm just curious if that's something that you've had to encounter or if it's a line that you feel you've been able to tread pretty well. I mean, I still think it's very early in my in that other side of the of the thing. You know, I just started NBC really this year, um, and I know I just had a sort of a feature with Patty Marlowe, and I mm-hmm. want and I reached out to Patty. I wanted to make sure that there was no pressure on my side to do it, and I I wanted to make sure that he looked good. I'm not looking for too much, and I wanted to make sure guys felt comfortable. I don't know where this is going to lead. I, I jumped on it last year, sort of in the playoffs. I jumped on. And I'm not sure. I think, yeah, naturally somebody says, I don't want to say something that could make it into a paper or make me look bad. But I think being a player on on my aspect, I'm just, you know, I'm just having fun right now with yeah. it. It's enjoyable. I get to go on with Dan Rusinowski. He takes care of me on the ra- radio. And I got Brody Brazil and, you know, a pre and post. And we just talk about what happens in the game. And I, I'm having fun with it right now. And we'll see where it leads from here. Yeah, man. I know that all everybody that I've talked to has really enjoyed everything you've brought to the broadcast, be it um, on the on the radio end or whether you're doing the pre and post on NBC Sports California. And I, you know, I get a kick out of it because I like to hear, you know, especially not just the guys who've been removed from the game for a while because you get some of the older established guys and they, you know, have made a name for themselves as the broadcaster as much as they have the player. But you're very you know, shortly removed for your, from your career, you were talking, you know, less than, I want to say you retired in 2016, correct? Yeah. Three yes. years out now. Yeah. So that's three years, which I'll segue to another point out of that quick. Does it trip you out that Jumbo and Patty are still going considering you were taken in the same draft? And I associate you as having a very long and very successful career. And those two guys are still going at it. I, it, 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 it blows me away. And still playing strong. I think that's a, is a key point right there. Yeah. I mean, it it amazes me what Patty Marlowe was able to do with no camp. 
step into a game. I mean, we all knew he could score goals, but to step in and make an impact in so many different ways on the ice. And Joe, you know, he's just, uh, you know, a legend. I mean, he's going to, these two are future Hall of Famers. We always knew Patty was like the the skating style he could play. And then Jumbo, the way he sees the ice, you know, we always knew they could play for a long time, barring injury. And I mean, Jumbo's had some in the the last few years, but his work ethic and the way he takes care of himself to see them keep playing. I mean, uh, in some ways I could see them playing as as long as they want to. Um, And I'd be happy to watch them and, (laughs) and, and keep seeing them play the game of hockey. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And I, it's one of those things that it's, you know, I was in in high school when, you know, Jumbo and, and Patty were drafted, and these are guys that I've watched their entire career. And I think it's like now when I'm sitting down and watching the game with my kids, I can point out these legends, like, let's <coughs> let's watch these guys, like, pay, pay attention. And I'm hoping that it, you know, that, you know, at almost six and almost four, they'll be able to remember this later. But to me, that's such a, an interesting aspect of this, that these, these are cross-generational athletes because they've been going at it since the since the late 90s and it makes it all that much more fun for me as not just somebody who works in you know the media and broadcasting and into sports but just being a sports fan and being able to pass that down to my kids yeah and i mean if you, if you really look at it some of the amazing things too is to see the change in the sport from 1997 to now i mean we went through a lockout change rules back in hooking and holding where strength and everything was the key um and then you see all these different styles of game that have morphed out of those early late 90s into you know into the 2000s and now where we're at now where you've got four lines speed quickness fast and they can still make an impact on the game you can just see like you said such a cross-generational talents as as those two guys are to be able to have impacts at any point of their career you know early on they were impact players now i mean they're still impact players and that's uh, that's just a credit to them as players and just shows you how amazing it really is what's your take on the evolution in terms of guys like eric carlson and brent burns and the way that the the i the way we visualize a defenseman has changed so much especially just looking at the offensive capabilities of those two guys in particular i mean if you take a look at and, and to see that there's so, two different styles in some ways cre- still create that offensive weapon. You've got a guy like Brent Burns who can create a shot from anywhere. He's big, he's strong, um, you know, coming down the, coming down the wing is offensive prowess. And then you've got an Eric Carlson. He can make everything. So it's, it's like silky smooth. Everything comes naturally. You see the plays he makes sometimes and it really is just how natural of a game it is for him and to see that i mean you take a look at even the game last night that rasmus dalin the young kids mm-hmm. that are coming up these these defensemen where it used to be big strong i mean when i when i came in it was like six six i was considered a mobile defenseman when <laughs> i first came back in and just see how drastically the evolution of the sport has taken it to, to you got guys now where defensemen can be leading the league again in, in scoring reminiscent of Bobby Orr back in the you know in the 70s it's pretty it's pretty cool do you mind the offensive shift that we've seen in the sport and how that's being so uh, not not forced but that's that's being played up again like we've watched the numbers go up in recent years obviously some rule changes had to do with that but the, the fans respond is that is that the end goal in your mind or does it does it kind of rub you the wrong way sometimes 
No, I think for me, I mean, and especially me, I was a defensive defenseman, but I think the game's just more exciting. You're seeing more scoring. Nobody liked to see those games in the late 90s where you could lock it up and, and, and you know, you had a trap-style game yeah. where you're trying to pinch guys off. I, I think as far as growing the game of hockey and getting it to a wider audience and seeing the skill, you look at some of the way these kids can handle the puck nowadays, you know, it, it's just it really is phenomenal you take i mean across the board anywhere you go you got your mcdavid's your mckinnon's you see mckinnon and the way he can stick handle coming into the zone if anybody can say that that's not great hockey to watch i mean uh, you sometimes i i get caught staring at the puck up in the up in the stands and forget what to say because it's just <laughs> it is it really is something to see and i i it'll be amazed to see what the game can be in 10 years again we've got scott hannon joining us here on morning tide What's your take on the Sharks now? Because we saw them open up the season. It was slow to start. That was impacted. Eric Carlson had to leave to have a baby, so that's a big deal. I think people overlooked the absence of Evander Kane. I think people maybe who have been critical of Evander Kane maybe realized how much he brings to the ice by watching him miss that slate of uh, first uh, few games. Um, Patrick Marlowe comes back. Things settle down. They get three consecutive wins. They find themselves in a situation last night where they're able to keep on tying it but can't take that go-ahead goal. So, I, you know, the 30,000-foot view um, from Scott Hannon, what is that on the Sharks right now? You know, I think if you look around the league and you see all the top teams, not, not a lot of those teams had a lot of turnover. And if I think if you look at the Sharks losing some of the players that you did, key components of – not maybe in terms of top, you know, you, you lost somebody like Pavelski. That's a huge hole to fill in the room and on the ice. And, you know, even there was so Donskoy, like, there was a number of guys that, that played key roles last year. And then, so most teams didn't start the year with spots to fill. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the Vegas Knights, I'm not sure they had many and the sharks and rookies, it's always good to have guys coming up, but to, to try and have, I think we had five in the lineup. It's starting on opening night, and that's that's tough because you slot guys in certain areas, like you said, Evander Kane. It's it's amazing what he did. I I, I loved his game last night. The way he really puts a force, how makes Thomas Hurdle better because of just that grit he adds to that line in on the forecheck, the speed, the shots he can take, and you know, and then having Patty Marlowe back, slotting him in with Cooch, uh, it just relieves some of the pressure. And not to say that the rookies aren't ready for it, but that's a lot of pressure on those guys. Um, and to play against top lines in this league, it's nice to have that veteran presence up there, allow guys to move up the lineup during the year as they play better, as they you know, get more comfortable. You start to talk about guys in, in preseason. The game changes. And preseason is one thing, regular season. And then in playoffs, you always hear that, but it really is a big step. And to slot guys in the right roles right off the bat is a huge help. And you're seeing that in the last few games, especially since the little winning streak. And then even though we had a little setback last night, I think the Sharks played well. And once they're on a roll and they're looking to – to get better every night. Yeah, I mean, my take is always I don't buy into losing streaks unless they go on for a long time, and winning streaks are winning streaks because that what, that's what they are. I just look at the the long-term picture, and I think that you've had two extremes with a, a losing streak and then a winning streak to start off the season. But I'm I'm thinking this, if I you know try to be a rational person, it's like, okay, let's check in and see what, what it is by the time the end of November comes around. Then judge where it is when you're heading into the All-Star break. And I try to look at these little micro points along the season to try and judge things, not 
you know, a smattering of games in like we are right now. Is that is that too soft on me? Because I'm sure the players, uh, you know, I'm sure you reacted to each loss entirely differently than I would from the media perspective. You know, I think it's more – I think players are a little bit more big picture, and they can and they really? can be hard on themselves. And it's hard to, to criticize in, in, in the moment because hockey, just like any sport, is a game of mistakes. And generally, when you look at the end of the night, mistakes are the reasons why goals are scored and – you know, sometimes, and I think they're their own worst enemy sometimes with looking at that stuff. So I think they understand. They have confidence, especially in that room, the leadership that they have, and they're getting on the right track. If I was to look at where they've come from that first game of the year till now, their game is much better. Do I think it can improve? For sure. And I think they know that too, but it's a part of getting comfortable with everybody in the room, lines starting to click. You know, as far as if you take a look at like Patty Marlowe with Cooch's line, it's only been a small sampling of games right there. They didn't have a camp together and they're getting better every game. I like where their, where their game's going. Eric Carlson, the stress of, you know, having a baby being up and, and, and the sleepless nights coming back of an injury last year, you know, I, he, I expect him and he, I know he expects of himself to be a lot better coming forward. And when all those pieces start to happen, I really like where the sharks are going to go. And I have confidence just like they have confidence that they're going to be there right in the fight at the end of the year and ready to make a run in the playoffs. Scotty, love it, man. I know you got stuff to do, so I will let you go, but I really appreciate your time and uh, hope I can bug you again soon. All right, man? All right, my pleasure. Take care. Scott Hannon, everyone. Again, I'm really liking what he's bringing uh, on the broadcast end, and I'm obviously a big fan because we go to the same barber, but I thought that he brought up a lot of good points and talked about not overreacting and gave his perspective on the the veterans like Patrick Marlowe and Joe Thornton, guys who were taken in the same draft as he was. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, enjoy his entire outlook, and uh, it's good to see him in the broadcast picture, and I imagine we'll be hearing more from him as the season continues. But, you know, now it gets quite real for the San Jose Sharks because we've been doing a lot of the talk of the slow start, and then things kind of got rectified, and they've won three out of their last four. But the way the schedule plays out – they're not going to be back in town until the month of November now. And so the onus is most definitely on this team to get wins, put points up out of this road trip. Because you're going to start out in Buffalo. Then you go to Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa. Then you're in Boston. And that takes you through the end of October. So these are huge games. And again, you're not home until Friday, November 1st, taking on Winnipeg. So it's a huge stretch for the Sharks. It's not the defining be-all, end-all aspect of the season, but if you can get points out of these games and if you can take you know, more than 50%, then you're going to be putting yourself in a good position, especially as you come home for six at home. And in the entirety of the month of November, 11 of the 15 games you have on the schedule are at home. So it's a huge part of the season that the Sharks are entering. What's going to happen over the next 21 games, I think, is going to tell us a lot. Again, it's a long season. You look at the guys who won the cup last year, think about where they were in January. Anything is possible at any time. I'm not going to say the Sharks will be in that position or that they want to put themselves in that position, but that as important as I may make this stretch between now and the end of the month of November, it's still a long, long season. But I like what the Sharks are going to be entering, particularly the fact that once they get back from this road trip, this five-game road trip, they are going to have 11 of their next 15 games at home. If they can maximize that and put themselves in a good position, I think they will put a lot of people's anxieties at ease. I think they will get people a lot more to buy in on what we're seeing and what team has been designed and put out there. And a matter of just what waiting for this product to catch up with our expectations. And this is something that I think 
we went through the year after they lost in the Stanley Cup final. It was like we all knew what they were capable of. We all knew what they had been and how good they had been just a few months prior, you know, in May and June. And so it's hard to erase that mindset of seeing what the Sharks were last year in the postseason, knowing what they were capable of, even with an injured Eric Carlson and even with the banged up other guys that were out there on the ice, we still knew the level they were capable of playing and we're not seeing the Sharks at that level. So our direct comparison is a little bit skewed by the fact that, no, it's not May. It's not the Western Conference Final. It's not seven games against Vegas or Colorado. It's still a team that it's in its relative infancy for the 2019-2020 season, and I believe it's trending in the right direction. And like I said, what we are going to see between now, this five-game road trip, then you got six at home and 11 of 15 at home, by the time the month of November ends, it's going to be huge. It's going to be absolutely huge for the San Jose Sharks. But that wraps it up for this edition of Morning Tide. A big thanks to Scott Hannon for joining me for an interview. And I really enjoyed talking to him. And, you know, he was a uh, he was a guy that was always known as a good talker during his career, or as he puts it later in his career. But all my memories of him were always giving good interviews. But I really enjoyed what he had to say, and I'm really enjoying him on the broadcast stuff. So I hope you guys uh, get a kick out of that like I did. Um, and, of course, thanks to you for tuning in, as always, and the Sharks for making this podcast a reality. For the San Jose Sharks, I'm Ted Ramey, signing off.